Let me invite your attention to the 42nd chapter of the book of Job as we wind up our study of that book this morning. You follow as I read. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not that long. Um, But chapter 42 at verse 1, and here we go. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had, he had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapu. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, this morning we come to the, um, to the grand denouement, the, uh, the, the final resolution of this epic tragedy known as the book of Job. And what I have for you this morning is a series, kind of a list, a, a short list of applications or, or maybe pieces of wisdom, I hope. Um, applications that I hope will help us when it's our turn. Um, applications or lessons that I hope will comfort us when we're in the midst of our own suffering. 
So here's the first one. Gang, in, in every season of suffering, there, there, there comes a point, a turning point. And that turning point is not usually the point at which the suffering itself is alleviated. Rather, rather the turning point is that time when it begins to dawn on the sufferer that there actually may be some kind of meaning behind his pain. This is not the best illustration, but it does, I think, serve to illustrate my point. Um, I've told you a lot about this in the past, but uh, almost 10 years ago now, in 2003, Susie and I spent three months in Budapest, Hungary, that some of you know about, and we pastored a little English-speaking church over there, and we were there for 13 weeks. And the first six weeks were very hard. Uh, everything had been stripped away from us. Um, all the scaffolding underneath you that, that supports life, all that was gone. Uh, you, your friends, your family, your routine, your schedule, your job. Uh, there was no television to watch because it was all in Hungarian. We didn't know how to use the phones. We didn't know how to buy gas. We didn't, we didn't know how to exchange money. It was just, it was just all gone. And it was, it was a, in the middle of winter and it was hard to the point that um, I cooked up a scheme to come home early. And, um, you know, I think I told you this part that I told Susie, I gave her my four reasons that I was ready to come home. And, and she said, well, that's fine. If you go home, you're, I'm not going with you. So that was the end of that. But um, about that time frame, right, right about in there, Susie was asked to go to a, um, a meeting of women uh, that this little missionary wife was putting on. She had invited several women to her house and she had even entitled it she entitled the meeting in her home, Beating the Budapest Blues. The woman's name was Ebi. Ebi had been in, in uh, Budapest not much longer than we had. They'd come from Atlanta. Sharp couple. But there were several of them like that in this little church that I pastored, and they were all longing to go home. They all missed home. And so Ebi told all the attendees that they were to bring something uh, that they liked about Budapest, and they were going to talk nice about Budapest. And so I, Susie didn't drive while, uh, while we were over there, and, and, um, and I had to take her. And we, they lived on the side of a mountain, and I'm telling you, going up this road, getting to this house, it was treacherous. If you went too far to the right, and I'm not overstating this, if you went too far to the right, you were in a, you were down a, a, a side of a mountain. Anyway, we got over there, I left her, and then about two, two and a half hours, I came back to get her. She got in the car, and, and, um, she didn't say much, just how she'd enjoyed herself. And, and then we got home, and she put on her pajamas and a robe and, and came in where I was and sat down and, and looked at me and said, I think I know why we're here. And uh, she went on to say that um, these girls that she had just met with, they all wanted to go home. They were all longing to be back in their homes in Atlanta. But they didn't have a ticket out in seven weeks like we did. They, they were staying. And our job, the reason that we were there, was to give them something on Sunday mornings that was normal, that they recognized, that was a familiar sound. Something that, that they could... That, that they could... 
almost think themselves back at home. Guys, um, at that point, the next seven weeks of our stay in Budapest were absolutely life-changing. Gang, it's imperative if you're going to study the book of Job that you understand that Job's peace with God was established back in chapter 40 um, in, the, in the midst of that theophany that we've talked a couple of weeks about. Um, it was not that it was established here in chapter 42 in the epilogue. It was established back here. It was, it was not Job's return to normalcy and ease that, that finally reconciles him to the ways of God in his life. It was that bone-rattling encounter with God. The pain he still has. But now, now he senses that, there's, that there actually may be some kind of meaning in his pain. And if you can get there, everything will change. Guys, let me tell you something that will help you get there. It's a conviction. It's a conviction that that, that you must have in your whole, at the base of your soul... That there's always more than meets the eye in the economy of God. You know, Job says just about that much. You know, I've heard of you, but now I see you. That, that there's always something more than meets the eye in the economy of God. This, this, this thing called life is not some kind of cosmic chess game. God, God is not a bully like, like Job's wife accused him of being. God is up to something in in these circumstances in which we find ourselves. He's up to something. And very honestly, that may be all you'll ever get. But it'll be enough. When you begin to think, there just may be some meaning behind this pain. Gang, what happened to Job is that Job's God got bigger. And, um, and so must ours. <laughs> ours has got to get bigger too. That is if we are to suffer well. However, if, if you arrive at conclusions about God based solely on your circumstances you will always end up with a distorted view of God and the Chaldeans will one day soon come knocking on your door. You remember the Chaldeans, don't you? Back in chapter 1, the Chaldeans were the ones that killed all of Job's uh, servants and stole all his camels. And if Job at that moment had drawn certain conclusions based on his circumstances, Job would have been finished You know, I, I think the most notable example of, of, of that, uh, that is drawing conclusions based on your circumstances, is, a, is one that was given to us by a Jewish rabbi. 
You know what I'm talking about. Uh, it was a book uh, 50 years ago or so by, doc, uh, by a Rabbi Harold Kushner, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Do you remember? I don't know if you read the book. I did. I've, I've got the book. Um, but he watched his teenage son die of leukemia. And as a result of that experience, he began to question whether God were all-powerful and all-good. And if he were those things, he would have never let this happen to his son. And therefore, he concluded that the God of the Bible cannot exist. (laughs) Well, guys, um, are those two things mutually exclusive? The Bible teaches them both. And by the way, he wasn't the first one to pose such a conundrum about God's goodness and his, his omnipotence. In 1755, on November the 1st of 1755, an earthquake struck Lisbon, Portugal. Now, unfortunately, November the 1st was on a Sunday. Actually, it was on a big Sunday. It was on All Saints Eve, All Saints Day in, in Lisbon. And so the churches were packed. And as a result of this 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 earthquake, um, 30 churches were immediately destroyed and 15,000 people died immediately. And then in the coming hours and days, 15,000 more would die. And one of the many people who were stunned by this news was the French philosopher Voltaire. He wrote about it for months to, on end, uh, expressing himself in terms of just stunned horror. And, and, he, and he said to his reading audience, how could anybody believe in the benevolence and omnipotence of God after such a thing had happened? Ladies and gentlemen, if you draw your conclusions about God based solely on your circumstances, you will always end up with a distorted view of God. I'm saying, guys, that there's got to be a conviction on our parts. That there is always far more than meets the eye in the economy of God. Do you believe that? Because it will help you get to the point, the turning point, where you begin to think that just maybe... There's some kind of meaning behind our pain. Before I leave this point, I just want to speculate about Job. And the reason I'm doing this is because I'm hoping to just to, to seed your thinking. Because maybe you're in circumstances even presently, and you're trying to figure out what's going on. And maybe, maybe this will give you some thoughts that you can improve upon to just kind of sort out what it is that I'm experiencing presently. For instance, guys, if you look at verses 7 and 8, um, you learn in verses 7 and 8 that Job was to pray for his three friends. And through his prayers, those three friends would be saved. Now, gang, I want you to notice in those two verses, verses 7 and 8, Job is called my servant four times. This innocent sufferer, Job, is going to do something on behalf of some guilty people And that thing that he does is accepted by God, restoring the guilty. Does that sound familiar? An innocent sufferer, 
suffering on the part of the guilty and the thing that he does makes those guilty people acceptable to God. Does that sound familiar? Guys, Job becomes their champion, as does Jesus Christ become ours. Three guilty men come on bended knee to Job, bringing not only apologies, but they bring ritual sacrifices and humbly beg Job to intercede on their behalf. For all we know, Job is still covered with sores and sitting on a garbage dump swatting flies. Was the purpose behind Job's suffering the saving of those three friends? I don't know. Maybe. But I think we can say this much. You're being watched. That is, how you suffer matters. It impacts the people that are around you. Could that be some of the purpose or the meaning behind yours? Maybe. Or or how about this? After this whole thing is finally over, and it's interesting that it says when he had prayed for uh, his friends, this is in verse 10, he gets his stuff back. That is, after he had prayed for his friends, he gets all of his stuff back. All of his his fortunes are restored. Um, but maybe, maybe material blessings are not safe to have until you're willing to serve God without them. You think that could be the meaning, perhaps? The, the purpose behind Job's suffering? None of that, that, um, that, that, those gifts, none of those material things did Job earn. The Lord's giving of them is just as gratuitously unpredictable as his taking of them. But maybe, maybe Job had to learn something about his, his stuff. Maybe that's it. I met with a man recently who, who has lost about $90 million. You, you think it maybe could be in there somewhere? about our relationship to our stuff? I don't know, guys. All I'm saying is that there comes a point in the midst of whatever you're in, your kids, there comes a point when it dawns on you that That maybe, just maybe, there is some meaning behind this pain. And when you get there, it'll get better.
Here's a second piece of application from the book of Job. <laughs> I want you to notice and look at verse 13 and um, 13, 14, 15. Let me read those real quick. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first Jemima. I guess that's right. And the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the lands, there was no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Now, what does that have to do with anything? The fact that Job had three beautiful daughters, that, that's certainly nice to know. But quite honestly, after all that Job has gone through, the, the pulchritude of his daughters seems to be an odd fact to be singled out for special mention. Don't you agree? What's that all about? I want you to notice a couple of things, guys. I want you to notice that the daughters are named. The sons are not. There's seven of them. You don't see their names. But you are given the names of the, of the three girls. Notice, secondly, that those three daughters are given an equal inheritance with their brothers. So this phenomenal beauty of Job's daughters is not the point. What you're seeing unfold here in these last verses of Job was not conventional Old Testament protocol. To most of the ancient societies, ladies and gentlemen, of the world of that day, such treatment of women would have seemed not merely eccentric. <laughs> this was politically subversive. To give a woman equal inheritance is to give them equal status, which was not merely counterintuitive in this culture. Not just unthinkable in this culture. This was downright scandalous. And no doubt, Job would have had to have endured another round of harsh criticisms because of what he's done. But, ladies and gentlemen, it seems that at this point, Job seems to be possessed by some kind of prophetic love which points to, a, a, to the gospel era. Which, by the way, as you may recall, has a statement in there by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. There, he says, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. There is no male nor female. Job got it. Job got it that God does things unconventionally. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we believe in a gospel that is counterintuitive. And yes, it is downright scandalous. You know, it, 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 it always baffles me. Well, we can go to Christmas season year after year. And the public schools can get away with anything they want to in any kinds of religious observances except Don't you mention that Jesus stuff. Don't you mention that Christian stuff. 
Mention anything else you want to mention, but don't you mention that. You let people pray five times in whatever direction they want to play in, but don't you mention him. The gospel is a scandal. I'm saying to you that one of the purposes of this book of Job is to underscore the scandalous nature of the gospel. It's a gospel that offended Job's three friends. It was a gospel that offended all of the people of Jesus' day. And it's a gospel that still offends It's a gospel that turns everything right side up. It's a gospel that that elevates the downtrodden and the marginalized and promises, promises forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you're one of the uh, religious elites or one of the religious insiders, this gospel will not be, will not appeal to you. But for the rest of us, this gospel is beautiful. This Savior is glorious. I don't need an instructor. I don't need a teacher. I need a Savior. And Job points us to him. Even here. Here's my third little application. The the last two verses, the last paragraph of the book is one where we finally see an end to Job's suffering. Or do we? Verse 17 says that Job died. But before he died, (laughs) he lived another 140 years. You reckon there was no suffering in those 140 years? There was. Job died, and so will we. And in light of that fact, I'd like to mention two quick things. First of all, the great debate, ladies and gentlemen, if you've missed this, then I've failed you. And and I would call it my failure, not yours. But the great debate in this book of Job. The great debate is, will Job honor and love God just because of who he is without his blessing? The answer's in. The answer for Job is yes. 
But what about us? Will the sorrows of this life ruin me for the next one? Will I let my pain here turn me into a bitter opponent of God's? You know, guys, I've been in the ministry about 40 years now. And over the course of 40 years of ministry, it doesn't happen often. But I guess it's happened... I don't know, 10 times in the course of 40 years, something like this, where a man looks at me and he says, my son was killed in an automobile accident at the age of 17, and I will never, never believe in a God who would allow that. Or a woman who says, my husband ran off with my best friend, and I will never forget. Guys, listen to me. Don't ever forget that through the devil's attempts to ruin you, through the devil's attempts to break you, God is making you. Making you into something good. You know, my secretary, Cindy Shriver, um, from time to time, she, um, she bakes banana bread. And um, she brings it over here in the morning. And, of course, I don't get in until after lunch, and so I don't ever get any. That makes me mad. Uh, but uh, she did it Friday. She baked some banana bread um, for the staff because it was Johnny's last day. And it was just kind of a little sweet thing, to you know, so that we could gather around the coffee and banana bread and love on John or something. Guys, do you realize that the primary ingredient in banana bread is rotten bananas? Now, if you take them and you, and you handle them right and you add a little stuff and you do a little thing and you do it all right, it comes out and it's... Um, It's pretty tasty. My brother and sister in Christ, listen to me. There's a lot of rotten bananas in this life. But if you handle them right, something really sweet comes out of it. Here's a piece of wisdom I would offer you. It's not mine, but all of us have got to learn to set this life and all that it confronts us with in the context of eternity. I think it was Teresa of Avila who said, I'm not sure it was her, but I I think it was her, who said, after one day in heaven, all the pain in this life will look like one bad night in a bad hotel. But as for now, I hate to tell you this. It ain't over. 
that never really ends. At least it doesn't end in the way that we wish it would. You know, I've been asked, and, and, and I've asked it before myself, how do you know when this thing that I'm in, how do you know when it's over? I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I, I know this, that, that I'm getting close to it being over. When I'm able to think of the person or the loss with a, with a, with a measure of joy instead of a, a nagging feeling of anguish. I know I'm getting close to it being over when my mind is no longer controlled by anger or a need for revenge. I, I know that I'm getting close to it being over when I can ask questions other than those unanswerable ones that start with the word why. I know that I'm getting close when my day is not feel, filled with statements that begin with if only. When any of that takes place, I'm getting close. I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to this present sorrow ending. But there's going to be another one. Guys, earth is not heaven. That no more tears, no more pain stuff. That's later. As for now, you and I live in a fallen and broken place. Satan and sin and self will see to it that there will be more episodes of pain and life can be counted on to pretty much give me as much of it as I can stand. I close with this. Job, Job is not the innocent sufferer. Christ is. And his story, that is Job's story, like every other story, is to point us to Christ. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis says that God shouts to us in our pain. And here's what he shouts. You need Christ. You need Christ. You need Christ. 
Did you hear that? Our Father, I do pray that you would remind us that the greatest need that any of us has is not for more money or a promotion or a corner office. It's not for another baby. It's not for a new home. The thing that makes some sense out of this life is Christ, Christ and him crucified. The Christ, your Christ, Christ Jesus. And ultimately, we begin to get a sense of what life is and what it offers because of our relationship to him. So, Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met this Savior, would you convince them that their present circumstance has meaning in it and that part of the meaning just may be that they end up with a relationship to Jesus Christ. We pray, of course, in his name.